Hi, I'm Sam Pador, and I'd like to welcome Tom Constantin. Tom played keyboards with the Grateful Dead from 1968 to 1970. So welcome, Tom. How are you doing today? Oh, uh, ambulatory. Mean to stay that way. <laughs> yeah, that's a big word there, right? Oh, you're going to get a lot of them. Look out. Well, as someone with extensive classical education and background, how would you say that affected your playing with the Grateful Dead? It was all I had uh, when I joined them. Uh, my background was all I had, and I brought it with me, and it's what I went with. Ta I, I wasn't able to tailor things or manipulate the universe that much back then. I was very young, and uh, I did have that background, as you mentioned, and uh, I just went with it. It's what I had. Uh, Anthem of the Sun, there's a place where I quoted a Brahms concerto. Oh, wow. So... This is the source. It was the stuff that was in my hands and in my head. So you you really like studied music in school and like for years before you joined the band, right? Oh yes, I've been to Europe. I studied avant-garde composition with Carlton Stockhausen and Pierre Boulez and Luciano Berio, and spent a couple of months at Henri Pousseau's electronic music studio in Brussels. And uh, before that, when I grew up in Las Vegas, I took. Uh, advanced music lessons for the university. There was a guy who was the music department. He was the whole department. There wasn't anybody else. And uh, he arranged for me to have a performance of a piano piece of mine with the orchestra. Oh, wow. So uh, this was going on uh, quite in advance, yes. So th that's like a lot different from like your experimental like jams with the Grateful Dead, right? Oh, everything is all different all the time. Although the uh, electronic music in Europe uh, sort of applied. Mm -hmm. And if anything, I sort of squared up a bit to fit in. Really? Okay. Oh, yes. Oh, that... And uh, uh, impro improvisation also. Uh, Steve Reich had a series of concerts in San Francisco that I joined in on, which were very improvisatory. This was in 1964. Oh, wow. And... And you joined the Grateful Dead from the Air Force, right? I was spirited away, yes. I would have joined earlier, but I had this obligation, and I didn't want to go to Canada or jail. So I'd received a draft notice from the Army. And uh, at the time, enlisting in the Air Force was something that they would accept as an excuse. Oh, wow. So I didn't have to show up from the Army. I, I want a programming computer for the Air Force at Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada, instead of programming a potentially malfunctioning M-16 in Southeast Asia. Yeah, good, good for you there. I, I know with the times being in the military, um, I mean, in the 60s with the Vietnam War and everything, that that's just, when I saw that, I was so surprised because the music community then was very, like, anti-military almost. Oh, yeah, yes. There, there was no uh, thank you for the service sort of things going around when I walked into a restaurant. Uh, there are two tunes that sort of summed up the background music for that time. It was uh, Downtown by Petula Plark, which is Let's Go Out and Have Fun, and Eve of Destruction by Barry McGuire. And both of them were very high in our minds. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, we were getting high in our own minds, so we compensated. <laughs> oh yeah, well, well, that must have uh, definitely affected your your musical journey, right? Like LSD and all the the psychedelics from, I guess, the psychedelic '60s. Uh, both in listening and performing, 
although we saw that if there was too much, uh, everybody became a spectator and nobody was a participator. Uh, it was uh, definitely great for performing. I remember hearing uh, Under the Influence, Sgt. Pepper, or several Rolling Stones albums at the time. Uh, they worked very well. Frank Zappa worked especially well at high altitude. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, I did. I did read somewhere, um, just a a couple days ago, that you and Pigpen stayed away from psychedelics more, though, right? At the time, yeah, uh, I had been. Uh, while I was sucked into the Air Force, I was sucked further into Scientology, and I wouldn't even take it over the counter headache pill. Oh wow! It, it, uh, uh, I, I once sent a letter to L. Ron Hubbard about, hey, what's this about? And he said the point is to become at cause rather than the effect of the drug. And at the time, that made sense. Uh, I mean, I was young and naive, and I had been there and done that with the psychedelic experience. And uh, to me, it seemed like I was trying something new. Mm-hmm. Well, you and Pigpen did have, like, a really strong friendship in, in your days with the dead, right? Oh, extremely. We were roommates on the road, and uh, we shared a house in Nevada. Oh, that, so I saw him every day. That must have been interesting. I know he, he passed very young. Oh, yes. Well, he had childhood diseases which predisposed him. I mean, uh, I can't imagine that drinking yourself to death at the age of 27. Uh, it usually takes quite a bit longer. And there were things that tripped him up uh, Lamentably is an understatement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've heard, like, I was listening to Live Dead earlier today, actually, um, and just your, like, amazing keyboard sound works so well with his blues influence on the band. It's really interesting. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Again, I was just bringing what I had to the table and hoping for the best. But you, you started out playing, like, classical piano, right? Uh, yes, pretty much. Uh, such as I was. Uh, I was even sort of outside the fold in that group, but uh, you know, all of my teachers were classical teachers. I had a teacher who was uh, from Steinway in New York and moved to Las Vegas. There were a lot of musicians from New York and Europe who moved to Las Vegas in the 40s and 50s because there was work there. Uh, there every strip hotel had an orchestra. Oh, wow. And uh, the showrooms were happening, and there was good pay. There were people paying off houses. A lot of my mentors uh, were strip musicians. Milton Fried had a house off Desert and Road in Eastern in, in Las Vegas, and three of his kids were musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Bromko, uh, a violist who occasionally conducted the University Orchestra. Uh, Antonio Morelli conducted the orchestra at the Sands, and a lot of them played in his orchestra. Louis Basil at the Sahara, Nat Brandwin at the Tropicana, Russ Morgan at the Dunes, uh, the the list goes on. Oh yeah, wow. I I mean, it it's really cool that you you transitioned from that normal like piano sound. And how'd you get how'd you get to that organ like the your your I guess your signature sound with the dead. How did you get there? It's what they had for me to play. Uh, I was a waif arising from the the uh, the desert from Las Vegas and just. Uh, showing up, uh, hey, what you got? And at first they had a Vox Supercontinental, which uh, suited Terry Riley very well for Rainbow and Curved Air, but in the context of the band, 
it had one sound that uh, didn't suck, as far as I can see, and that was <laughs> it. Whereas the Hammond B3 was a lot more versatile. You could do a lot more things. Uh, although my main instrument was actually the old uh, acoustic, we call it now piano. I prefer Eastern European ones that begin with a B, version of Bechstein, Blutner. <laughs> although a nice Mason and Hamlin would be a sweet companion for a while. Oh, so yeah. I've become less picky over the years. Shickering. Oh, yeah. Well, you must have played all kinds of instruments. Like, geez, that your your background, everything you've played, like you, you've played so much like variety, right? Well, it, it runs the whole gamut. Uh, there was a gig where I felt compelled to announce that the piano was provided by Mattel. Oh, wow. <laughs> Some of them are better than others. Yeah, wow. Fisher Press. I made a better Ashley one. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I was actually, I was, um, looking at, at videos the other day and I, I happened upon one where you played this really cool medley of like dark star, almost cut my hair and turn on your love light that how did, how did the Crosby stills and Nash get, make, make its way in there? I thought that was really like not out of place cause it worked so well, but it, it was just like surprising to me. It's kind of you to say it worked so well. I went all over the place in, in terms of my solo sets, in terms of putting together medleys like that. Uh, Mountains of the Moon and Dark Star is a possibility. I would even fold in uh, Frank Zappa's Trouble Every Day, which fits ever so nicely. And uh, late in the year, uh, around wintertime, uh, I found that uh, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald comes very easily out of Dark Star. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, the Numerous possibilities. Uh, one time, in the, uh, this was during, a, uh, I had a solo break in uh, London, and I played Can She Excuse My Wrongs by Don Dowland, into For No One by Paul McCartney, into a song by Anton Webern. Wow. I think, uh, let's, let's run down the whole the gamut of one shot. And uh, again, like you say, they, they complement one another, even in unexpected ways. And uh, I'm in search of making connections like that. Uh, Glenn Gould said, if you're going to do the tunes just like everybody else, why do them? Wow. And uh, I, I, want to, I want to give the people something interesting, something to think about, something they haven't heard before. And that has that always just been something on your mind, like trying to make up these cool medleys every time you're playing? It's something that occurs naturally. Oh, yeah. It, uh, for eight years, I was the uh, the house pianist for a radio show in San Francisco. And uh, every opening, I would do an intro that was topical somehow. Uh, think of an example. Uh, I worked uh, Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man into the theme song that opened the show. <laughs> as, as, as one possible example. Uh, I mean, I was on for eight years. I did several hundred shows with him, so there were a lot of them. Wow. that's That's actually... That must have helped you with the dead, actually, right? Like, because they did a lot of, like, oh, yeah, I mean, um, Live Dead, I was talking about earlier, St. Stephen, the 11, and it just goes on and on and on, right? And, and there's, like, a, you guys must have been playing there for, what, like an hour straight, just all these different songs going into each other. Time was standstill. Uh, we had two major medleys at the time, uh, Dark Star into St. Stephen into... The 11 into Love Light, usually. Mm -hmm. And the other one was Alligator into Caution. And during the transitions, anything could happen. 
uh, another tune could be thrown in if somebody had a whim. Uh, you know, back in 1969, we didn't do set lists. We didn't have those out like we see now. Wow. But uh, it seems every band does. Uh, it was uh, Jerry and Bob would get together and say, okay, what are we going to do next? <laughs> wow. It was very ad hoc, very, very up to the main. Well, you must have had to... You you had to know everything then, right? Well, I thought I did. <laughs> you know, when you're in your twenties, that's how you are. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's something. Well, for you, like with someone with such a musical knowledge, I guess you must have had some fun with the eleven then, right? Just like counting that, that must have been enjoyable. Uh, you know, I like it better as a listener, really, than as a performer, uh, because when you're thinking about it. Uh, when you, uh, there's so much to think about when you're playing it. You don't have room to really have as much fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jerry has the one linear line of what he's playing. He, he's probably the freest in that context. It reminds me of a tune that I played with the Henry Kaiser Band, uh, a tune from the band called King Harvest. And it's a whole lot of fun to listen to, but when you're playing it, you're counting all the time because there are tempo changes. Uh, there are meter changes. There are all sorts of things going on. That you, and you're thinking about that instead of expressing yourself. Oh, so you have so, to just, uh, you figure out the, the technical bits. The 11 is a bit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, the 11, it's always fun for me because I'm, I'm taking music theory now and I'm trying to, every time I listen to it, like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 1. Like, it, it's just fun. Well, it's like a 12 with an, an eight note knocked out. Mm-hmm. And that did um, estimated profit, which is in seven. And to match their style, they did it in eight. And I couldn't resist asking, have they done any other tunes like uh, the 12? <laughs> oh, gosh. Like you can rationalize them somehow. But uh, of course, estimated profit sort of resists rush, with testing. One, two, resists rationalization. Mm-hmm. Wow. If there's anything that's very fun about the odd signatures, is that's what they do. Uh, I composed the piece once in 17-8. That's and awful. it's fun because uh, 11 rationalizes a 12 minus 1, whereas 17, you don't know if it's 18 minus 1 or 16 plus 1. <laughs> so you're stuck in between both of those, and that, uh, eventually the mind just sort of gives up and rides with the flow. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like you were saying before, though, that's got to be, like, hard to express yourself with, right? Because you're just thinking the whole time. Well, uh, in the 11, and actually in my 17 piece, too, the, the rhythm is a background for the uh, the line to flow over. Mm-hmm. And that's where the expression is. You know, and uh, that's one of the things that Jerry was so good at in the jams. Yeah. And uh, actually, there were, there were times, and I think everybody does this, he would lose the one. Oh. And it was still work. Yeah, I mean, he, he did... The band would have three or four different ones. Mm-hmm. He, he did have a way of figuring things out, huh? Like, his, his guitar style was just almost not unrepeatable, but just so so him. Like, you can always tell that's Jerry Garcia right there. He was definitely in the moment, yes. Mm-hmm. Was, was it ever, like, tough playing with him because you wouldn't really know what he was about to do? Oh, I... I, I always never knew sacramental but yeah it didn't bother me because <laughs> that's what you expected like you say that was him oh yeah yeah well that that must have been fun though just 
It's a little something different every time, right? And the newness at the time uh, was, uh, it was this bright light that was shining on all of us. Uh, I hear people with a mixed reactions to the new quote-unquote Beatles tune. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and uh, some naysayers saying, no, it's really not uh, anything. And I'm thinking, there's no way they can recapture the newness of tunes like Here, There, and Everywhere or Yesterday when they came out. Mm -hmm. uh, they were so fresh. Uh, they were so amazing. And now, as we look back at them, and it's like looking back at classical music. But when they came out at the time, they, they were something extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what did you think of like now and then? I guess because it is new news in the in the music field. Uh, marvelous the way they use the technology. You see their old faces, their new faces, back and forth. Uh, the, the new tune is definitely expressive, but uh, that's just sort of like the, the bottom line of what you expect from them anyway. Mm -hmm. They would be. He had a couple of really, really big hits, like the two I mentioned, and of course a lot of others. But it's not up with them. But it's it's worth your time. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I I would totally agree with you there. Were you were you ever like big into the Beatles in in the '60s when when they were, I guess, still going? I thought everybody was. I mean, they were quite phenomenal. Uh, it's hard to express nowadays uh, how big the phenomenon it was. I mean, people uh, waited for their next single, uh, them and Bob Dylan also. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a magical time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm sure, well, The Grateful Dead, you guys did cover um, some Beatles songs, right? Oh, but The Grateful Dead touched a lot of different galaxies. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I remember when Big Ben did Hey Jude. Oh, uh, yeah. Very much in his style as opposed to uh, uh, the, the European style, shall I call it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yes, but, I mean, hey, Grateful Dead went all over the place. Mm -hmm. A lot of Bob Dylan songs. Um, can't even imagine what else yeah. they, they did, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, did you have a favorite thing you, you would play with them? The long jams were much more enjoyable for me because I had to just stretch out. Mm -hmm. uh, there were things I could do then. Uh, the other tunes, I know they went over well, like, Good Lovin', for instance, the shorter ones, hard to handle. I mean, they, they worked like gangbusters. But I had a, a, I knew what my job was, and it was pretty simple, and I took care of that. But that's all that was on my mind. I didn't let go and say, okay, let's have some fun now. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you did, I'm guessing, have fun with, like, Dark Star and stuff then, because those tended to go on forever. Well, I don't think, I, I mean, Dark Star is going on right now. <laughs> it's not so much you begin and end, it's something you enter and depart. Mm -hmm. Was that always something that you would think, like, when you were with the band? Oh, sure. I mean, it's like, where are we going to go this time? And it was always a surprise, usually pleasant. <laughs> I can't remember if it was unpleasant. Sometimes he was just more pleasant than others. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I know you've played on so much, and I I was listening to, to some of your catalog a couple weeks ago, and I... I came upon, you did like an album of embryonic journey with Yorma, right? Oh, Relics Records had the idea of doing this. We would do an album and it would be nothing but our takes of embryonic journey. It seemed kind of funny to me, but I went along with it. And we did 5,000 copies. Yorma and I each autographed them. I discovered that I have two separate autographs. Huh. It's funny the stuff going on the way. And uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. 
it's uh, uh, I think uh, New Sounds, a radio show in New York City, once did a version of where they had an entire sh- a show of the same tune performed by different people. Oh, wow. So uh, there are, are versions of, you know, of doing something like that, but that's what we did. And uh, the, they were concerned that uh, they wanted to get one entire take that was perfect. That and, must uh, have been tough, yeah. There wasn't splashing or studio magic going on. <laughs> And so that's why we did so many takes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, yes. Embryonic Journey is just, like, an amazing song. I saw Yorma a couple months ago, and he played it, and I was just, like, I was smiling so hard the whole time. It's a it's a fun one. He hit it with, with that way, way back when. I mean, we were so young, it's amazing. But uh, I asked him to just to vary it from one performance to another. He said, no, it plays pretty much the same way every time. Mm-hmm. Well, how did you take what what he had written with Jefferson Airplane, and how did you make that almost your own a little bit? Well, I, I guess anything I do is sort of my own. I can't help that. Uh, but I just uh, did what I do with it and hoped it worked, uh, as uh, with most anyone. Actually, he, as he told me, does it pretty much the same way. So he had a, I had a very reliable reference point for oh, whatever yeah. I was doing. And I, I, I learned a neighborhood. You know where, where where what chords come, and how it works. And once I was there, it was just a question of doing it again, and huh. again, and again. <laughs> well, it turned out it's a really cool version of that song. I well, I'm... thank you so much. <laughs> well, I I know one other thing that somehow you've escaped um with with time is the the curse of the keyboard and piano players with the Grateful Dead that all of them seem to die really young but but you you made it out of that what what are your thoughts on like what what this whole deal was it's some sort of cosmic coincidence I remember when I first met Vince we were at this public event and I went over to his table and I said you know this thing about being the sole surviving keyboard player is not that important to me. He had just had a, a medical emergency, and uh, it got a smile out of him, and we were friends thenceforward. Oh yeah, well I mean, and it's it's stuck till this day though. You're still you're still the only one. Well, I wish I knew what I was doing it right, <laughs> but I'm glad it happened that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's totally wacky how that happened though. Is there like? Was that something you ever thought about? Like, hmm, why me? Oh, well, I, I thought, I've had that thought many times in different contexts. <laughs> but uh, not so much that one, actually. Uh, it's, I regard it as a cosmic coincidence. And I consider myself very lucky, which I also do in other contexts. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've uh, you've done done a whole lot throughout your career. It's, it's really, it's really interesting. And, um... One thing I I really loved because I was I was checking out your website and of course like pictures and everything mm-hmm. is you would have this amazing mustache like that Fu was Manchu, yes. Th- Many men bite but Fu Manchu. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a stylish thing at the time. But there's there's a maintenance of it of the, which becomes an issue. You trim one side and it's a bit short, and you see it's not to match, and it lo- no longer looks so good. And you need to trim a little, at least a little bit, or it winds up in your soup. Oh yeah, oh that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I mean it's just it's such a it's such a you look. I I love 
the, those pictures that I've seen. It's, um, how, when did you decide to, to just do that mustache? Uh, it, it, again, it just sort of happened naturally. It might have been right after I had a beard, which didn't work so well. So I shaved off every part of the beard except it. Mm-hmm. And, when... and then there was the uh, quadruple twirl, you know, the two in the bottom and the two to the side. And uh, it was a gritty, kicky thing at the time, and I went with it. Well... Sort of a Wild Bill Hickok look. Yeah, yeah. Or Free Will and Franklin. Well, when did you decide to, to lose the mustache? I, I got squirted out of California. Became in, uh, in the. I was in the sights of your friend and mine, the tax man. Yeah. And they made several al- alarming allegations, which the court ultimately found to be untrue. But it was me out economically, so I got squirted across the country to North Carolina to stay with in-laws, and uh, it sort of naturally happened along then. It was a different milieu so to say, although they didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it was a, a cool look for its time, I will say. You you look at a, a picture of the Grateful Dead in the late 60s, oh, that's Tom. Like, that's that's very much you, and I, I, I loved that. That was that was fun. Another kind of thing of you to say. Thank you again. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've done everything. You've played at all sorts of great places but i mean one thing that stands out um in the test of like musical history is woodstock you played at woodstock right this is true yes well what was that like for you it wasn't our best set Mm -hmm. shall we put it that way at that time the band had so much equipment to play out of that uh let me back up a second and say that the way the stage was set up the stage was set up on a lazy lazy susan so that while one band was playing, the next band set up, and it was time for the other band to play, they just turned it around. Mm-hmm. And then they, there they were, ready to play. Well, our equipment was so heavy that Lacey Susan was too lazy to move. <laughs> so they had to take extra time and set that up the old-fashioned way. Uh, I mean, this is more than 50 years ago, but this is the old-fashioned way from there. And uh, that was our, our, our set. That's where we were starting from. Plus, it just been some severe rain. It was very humid. Uh, the guitar players are getting shocks from their strings. Nothing like a little bit of reversion therapy to make you not play your best set. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was also the, the, the stage uh, from the weight of the equipment uh, was showing its uh, displeasure. Uh, Phil was uh, quasi-joking about it, saying huge rock and roll disaster, hundreds maimed. <laughs> about a stage stage coming down. And then we went out and play, and it, it was pretty much our usual set. Uh, there was somebody I saw on the video. I, I must have missed it when I was there. Somebody ran up onto the stage and joined in the vocals of Lovelight. Really? And I, I'm just back in the background handling my part of the, the circus, and uh, that's pretty much what I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, getting in was uh, getting out was amazing. Uh, we got we flew in by helicopter. I flew in uh, flew in one of those. Uh, uh, you might remember those old Bell helicopters with, with the bubble. It really is like flying. You can see all around you. Mm-hmm. Except we drove out back to the hotel on a station wagon, having to drive through the crowds. Oh yeah. I think Phil was on the uh, sat on the hood. Admonishing people to get out of the way. <laughs> the car. I got, 
Oh, wow. And, uh, and we arrived. Uh, I, mean, I heard a bit of pianos and then some greetings as we were leaving. Yeah. Well, that that must have been, I don't know if you were in like the crowd at all, like seeing seeing anything, but that must have been so such like a cultural, I mean, it was a cultural phenomenon, but it, it must have been like such an experience, like seeing all those, what, 500,000 people just there. It was more so after it was over, what the media made of it. Uh, there were, later that same year, there was Altamont, which was also historic, and I saw even less of. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, I maybe spent time cowering backstage. I mean, I heard the stones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Mick Jagger saying, we got a good thing don't, going here, so let's fuck it up. <laughs> and uh, as far as the stones out, they didn't. So uh, there, there were some good parts of it also. But uh, no, I wasn't among the crowd at all in either event. Mm-hmm. Was that just like you, you didn't really want to deal with them? Or were you just busy? Uh, I, my job is to be findable. You know, I need to be there when it's time to go on stage. And I was just accommodating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was to wander off uh, anywhere. And we were brought in just before and took out right after. There wasn't much time to do much wandering around. Mm. Well, I, I read um, that you, you said at some point, well, music stopped being created in 1750 and began again in 1950. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I just found that really interesting. That's when I met Phil. And I was like a 17-year-old kid at the University of California. And uh, full of the arrogant know-it-allness, and I'd been into the music of Stockhausen and Boulez, which started around 1950. That's when the electronic stuff was starting to happen. And uh, 1750 was the death of Johann Sebastian Bach. I, I have since, of course, revised my opinion somewhat. There were, there were things happening between 17 and 1950, but it resonated with Phil, and we hit it off right away because we were both into the same kinds of music. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you guys knew each other since, well, from the early 60s, right? September 1961. Wow, you, you know the, uh, the month. I, uh, yes, but not the day. I, I could probably figure it out. <laughs> it was in the second floor of Morrison Hall at UC Berkeley for the music exam. Wow. Excuse me, the first floor. The second floor is the library. But I have other stories about that. <laughs> but, uh, and it was an all-day affair, morning and afternoon. And it was during the break, uh, around 12. And we were in the hall, and there groups of people pontificating, as teenagers do. Wow. Yeah. And there was Johnny Wellworth. Yeah, September 1961. Wow. Yeah, the earlier May act is when I performed in Las Vegas with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was an eventful year for, for me. <laughs> yeah. And then a little bit later, like... I, I wound up moving in with Phil in this apartment on Durad Avenue. Well, I mean, from when you knew Phil, did you know, like, did, could you tell you guys were going to go and play music together? Uh, not a clue. It just happened that way. Both. And uh, he, uh, I had the car, so I, uh, we drove to uh, the peninsula to meet his friend Jerry Garcia. He was already performing music, you know, guitar. He was doing uh, Appalachian folk songs, child ballads, stuff like that. Uh, he, he had not yet, uh, I can't think of any other way to say it, he had not yet come Jerry Garcia. He was, uh, uh, when Phil introduced, uh, Phil was 21, Jerry was 19, and I was 17. So we both had a lot of stuff in front of us, little of which was foreseeable. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, what what did you think when you met Jerry Garcia for the first time? I, I found him a, a wonderfully adept thinker who was into a whole lot of things, literature, film, music. Uh, he, he was reaching out in all directions, and that was plain to see right away. Yeah, wow. And when when you saw him, was he still in his, like, banjo phase, or was he, he was playing guitar? Uh, it was guitar mainly, mm-hmm. uh, although he, he was probably a multi-instrumentalist at the time already. And uh, like I said, he was mainly doing folk music. In 1961, rock hadn't taken off. It was still a folk music revival. Yeah. Uh, Woody Guthrie, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, and he was in that mold. Mm-hmm. Well, were you ever really into, like, folk music, Woody Guthrie, like what you were just saying? It took me a while. Really? Uh, I really, because I was into um, Stockhausen, John Cage, Edgar Perez, the older music, or Bach, Vivaldi, a lot of the composers like that. Claudio Monteverdi remains my favorite composer mm-hmm. from uh, the 1500s, 1600s. Wow. Uh, he gave everybody something interesting to do, and just a delicious, uh, sensuous madrigals. You know, courtly love, that sort of thing, uh, which, of course, is uh, aimed right at a 17-year-old. So uh, the folk music was, uh, uh, how shall I say, it seemed simple to me, mm-hmm. which uh, you know, compared to Stockhausen, it definitely was. And it took a little bit of mental adjusting to be able to encompass both. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Schoenberg encompassed both Brahms and Wagner, but if you were alive in the 1870s, you couldn't do that. You huh. either were into one or the other. There was a rivalry going on. Oh, that's funny. And it's not that there was such an intense uh, dissociation uh, as, as it was. Uh, I hadn't got to it yet. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, mu- music is so, there's so much of it. You can You can figure out what you like, right? It's... It's totally something you can play around with, which is just some of the beauty of it. Oh, and there's some, uh, there's so much now available on the internet. I mean, it's impossible to keep up with <laughs> all the possibilities. And also, it's so easily available now. Maybe not every bit of it. I mean, there are a whole lot of new things coming out. But uh, back in the day, you had to do searches. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple of record stores where they sold LPs in Berkeley. Uh, Campus Records was my favorite. There was also Record City and then Cody's, I think, had a lot of recordings. Uh, uh, they would hit me to new things coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, sea of Records in, in San Francisco at, uh, I think, Ninth and Howard. Um, this was before Tower Records or any of the mega stores. But it was harder to find then, and today it's so easy. Yeah. You can go on YouTube make up a name and you find out there it's 12th century composer I hadn't heard of. Well, I'm pretty lucky being in, in the modern day again to, to look at all that. And you know what, Tom, I'm also just, I'm so happy and thank you so much for, for talking to me. This has just been so fascinating to hear your musical story and just about, about, you know, how, how you've played music and it's just so neat to me. So thank you so much. Another kindness. I appreciate it so much. I also appreciate intelligent questions, which <laughs> I was sort of anticipating. And uh, you didn't disappoint. Thank you again. Oh, well, thank you.
I'm Sam Pador, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom Constantin. Tom was the keyboard player with the Grateful Dead from 1968 to 1970, and he just had a lot of really cool stuff to say. So if you did enjoy that interview, make sure to check out mybackpages.org to see all of our interviews, and you can find us on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts too. So if you enjoyed that interview, make sure to keep listening for many great interviews just like this one.